0: Welcome to Research Bites, the podcast about research students and their journeys in academia. My name is Lachlan Gray and joining me is Felix Cohen and Imtiaz Desai. And today we have our first guest, uh, Emma Harding, who is a third year PhD student who researches viral fossils. So Emma, how are you, how are you today?
1: I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on.
2: Woo, first guest. First (laughs) (laughs) guest. Feels good.
0: I'm sure everyone's sick of hearing our voices, so
1: let's move on to some other people. I'll try and help with that.
0: (laughs) Okay, so yeah, the first questions we we ask every guest is, how did you get into research?
1: Yeah, well, it's more that I was never dissuaded from it. I've always loved the idea of research, um, and everything I do just continues that love. Um, It kind of started when I watched Jurassic Park and all those kind of movies. Uh, 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 uh. My dad um, (laughs) was a big sci-fi buff, (laughs) so all the movies that I was watching were like people going to Mars, people bringing back dinosaurs, uh, all the things that could go wrong with that, but I found that pretty cool. (laughs) Um, So yeah, as I went on, I loved science. Uh, I decided to do a science degree, and then I decided to do honours in virology or viruses. And I've just been loving it, so I'll keep on doing this, <laughs> see where it gets me.
2: And was this at uh, the UNO, UNSW, where you're at now?
1: Yeah, so I did my undergraduate here at UNSW. I did an honours degree here. I did research assistant here, and now I'm doing a PhD here. You? So you're you're of born and bred. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> People walk past me thinking I'm just here. What was your undergrad
0: in? What did you, you study? What did you major? Um,
1: I started majoring in bioinformatics, Okay. Oh, really? but oh, then cool. I switched to microbiology because statistics is awful. Ah, <laughs> We spoke yes. about that last time. I'll second yeah. that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um,
2: and so what was your Honours project focused on?
1: Uh, so it was actually looking at flaviviruses. viruses. So those are arboviruses or viruses carried by insects. So things like dengue, uh, Zika virus, mm. West Nile virus. I was trying to find an antiviral that would work against all of them. Because the problem mm. with antivirals is they're usually very specific. It's not like an antibiotic where you can throw it against any infection and say, this is going to work to some degree. Antivirals, you need to know exactly what you're targeting and only one viral treatment works against one virus. So we're trying to see if we can broaden that and have a family-wide treatment of some sort. So you get bitten by a mosquito and we just say, here's this pill, it Mm. will work against everything.
2: Is that because the sort of mode of transmission in viruses is very different or is it something like internal about the biology of viruses that make it hard to treat synonymously
1: a bit of both um because bacteria are living we can target them in a sense that they have a metabolism that we can
2: stop viruses
1: don't have that so you need to physically disrupt them Mm. in some way you can't just block nutrients or anything like that Um, so it's a bit harder you have to look at how that particular thing's made up and how that's made up is going to be very different to a different virus so it won't work the same mechanism across types. Mm. Right.
0: And my first like introduction to, I mean, anything related to viruses really was the pandemic. Yeah. In, um what's the, it's like no normavir or something. One of those is like an antiviral, which is. Um, <laughs>
1: Molnupiravir. Yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's like based off like Thor's hammer or something, isn't it? I think that's <laughs> yeah, the name. Like more, yeah. Know, yeah. Yes. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. It's I similar. thought you meant they made it out of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, But yeah, it's really really interesting how you're sort of disrupting the life cycle of the virus Mm. by disrupting its ability to, maybe I'm talking talking nonsense here, but uh, restricting its ability to to replicate in cells, right? Yeah, Yeah.
1: that's the main way. You can block it from entering in the first place. Uh Mm. You can block it from basically snipping its genome, um, because it just has one long strand which gets snipped into functional parts. So if you stop that snipping, that can stop it from working, or you stop it from replicating. There's the three ways. Right. Or a combination of the three.
2: <laughs> Ideally, right? Ideally, yeah. Yeah, Right. And just for people who maybe don't know,
1: yeah.
2: how does a virus differ from like a cell, say the cells that we've been talking about you know, in our previous episodes, like human cells, how, do, how does a virus differ to that?
1: Um, it's a good question. It's a lot simpler. So a cell or a bacteria, in that case, they're alive. They need things going in. They need things coming out you think of them like a small person, we need to eat food, so mm. does a cell. We have waste, so does a cell. A virus doesn't really, it's just a string of um, what we call DNA or RNA, which is, you can think of it as a string of molecules. It doesn't think, it doesn't react to stimulus, it just is. Right. Um, so it's a lot harder to deal with because you can't It's just like information, right? It's mm. exactly yeah. like that, yeah, it's just information. And you can't really predict what it's gonna do because it doesn't want to do anything. Or not, not want to do anything.
2: It's super fascinating. Like they really like blur this line between living and non-living. Like essentially just a chemical reaction. Or it's not life, but they are able to be so you know important in our lives and the world. Um, as I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah, uh,
1: they're like a toolkit of spanners. Yeah. They're, they're not alive, but they can really ruin a lot of machines yeah. if you throw them in there. Yeah but they themselves are just a <laughs> That's an interesting <laughs> analogy, <laughs> analogy <laughs> to look at a I have heard that before.
3: <laughs> so that was your honours your honors program. Yeah. But then you said before the PhD, you worked um, as a research assistant. What project were you working on for that?
1: So that's when I started getting into eaves or viral fossils. Uh,
3: um,
1: it was a project that was meant to find new viruses in wildlife. So we have a lot of really strange wildlife in Australia which is the marsupials. You don't really find them anywhere else in such a diversity. So we thought if we've got this really whack wildlife, we'd have some really <laughs> whack viruses <laughs> infecting them. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to try and find some of those, and I didn't find any new viruses, but I kept finding these fragments over and over, and that led me to start investigating what are these fragments, these half viruses or quarter viruses.
3: Also, fragments of viruses, you mean?
1: yeah
2: and these were specific to Australian marsupials
1: these ones were um, but the uh, phenomenon is not okay So the fossilization of viruses occurs all the time everywhere but I just started in marsupials having a look at those
2: right and so when you say fossilization of viruses (laughs) yes (laughs) it sounds really fascinating Um, I guess how does that relate to sort of what we would think of as maybe fossils, you know, in the ground, digging them up, Um, a fossil record. How does viral fossils come into that?
1: Um, Yeah, so viruses don't have any hard bits to fossilise, so you (laughs) can be digging them, unfortunately. That would make my job easier. Um, But instead, every time they infect us, they get inside our cells um, and they start to mingle with our DNA um, and they have DNA or RNA as well. And sometimes it can get tangled in a sense and they can leave a little bit behind so it's not enough of a virus to cause us any harm, hmm. but it's a little like scratching on the wall. I was here 2009. <laughs> <laughs> thing. Right. Uh, and we could use that as a record because if that happens in one of our germline cells, uh, which is then turns into our children, it's passed on effectively. And that little message in our DNA or the part of a virus that's fossilised now can be passed on from children to grandchildren and so on. So if we find one in ourselves today, we can trace it back millions of years to one of our ancestors.
2: That's fascinating. So to be clear, you're not trying to bring back a Tyrannosaurus rex. Or, uh... um, not yet. No, yet. <laughs> no, <yet. laughs>
1: Maybe one of the viruses that infects. That's your postdoc, it. right? Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 Got to start little. So, so, okay. So you you mentioned here that that viruses when they they infect our cells they integrate into our genome. Is that a case for all viruses? Because I I thought that coronaviruses, this is like retroviruses Mm. typically, Mm. coronaviruses don't do that, or or am I mistaken?
1: No, we haven't found any coronaviruses that do it, so we would think not. Um, You mentioned retroviruses, so things like HIV. Yeah, yeah, they integrate as part of their life cycle. They've actually kind of taken advantage of that. So it means they infect you and suddenly they're everywhere because they've permeated into your very DNA. So that's particularly nasty. But we do actually find these other two viruses, which are, or other three, which are filoviruses, which is like Ebola Mm -hmm. and relatives, Um, parvoviruses and bornaviruses, which are two other groups or families. These seem to be kind of randomly cherry picked. We don't know why these types of viruses Mm -hmm. leave these fossils and nothing else does Um, for example if something like Ebola leaves a fossil why can't coronavirus or why can't influenza virus Um, so that's actually a really interesting mystery that's drawn me in as well Mm.
2: so let me uh, see if i can understand this clearly (laughs) so basically millions and millions of years ago a marsupial like a little kangaroo or something might have been hopping around and was infected by one of these viruses that then inserted a bit of its genetic material into its own genome and then it therefore passed it on to all of its um, children and millions of years later you can still detect parts of those viruses today.
1: Yep, exactly.
2: So that integration into the genome, does that serve any sort of function today? Like why would they have kept that around?
1: That is a big topic that you're <laughs> going to jump into there. Um, big topic of contention at the moment. Okay. Um, and that's part of what my thesis is on. Like, I like to find these fossils and trace them and things, but yes. I want to know, are they doing anything? Is there a reason that we mm. have them, like you mentioned? So uh, one reason we see even today with retroviruses is they can cause cancer. This is a bad thing, not a good thing. Yes. Mm. Um, so we think, well, maybe it's linked to things like Tasmanian devil yeah. cancers... Um, maybe we can use these viral fossils as biomarkers to detect cancers early on if they are, you know, if you can see cancer cells always have this kind of fossil, non-cancer cells don't, um, and stuff like that. I would really like to think that they help protect us as a kind of inheritable vaccine, Mm. Um, and that's what I'm working towards, that you keep a snippet, almost like keeping a picture of... um, like a criminal, so that if you see them again, mm. you can match it really quickly and say, "I know you." Get out, <laughs> kind of thing. But it would work across generations.
0: Wow, that's a really interesting idea. So yeah, because in the in some of the, the papers that you um, you sent over, and we can add them to the comments below, <laughs> um, is yeah this idea that these fossilized viruses can actually prime our immune system. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, it's just a really interesting idea that, so through what like DNA replication or even gene expression or whatever it may be, these viruses are then transcribed, right? And then our immune system's able to recognize them even though the threat's not there. Mm. And so you're suggesting that theoretically you get infected with um, like a dengue virus or something and your immune system's already seen it because it's been integrated into our genome.
1: Yeah, from thousands of years. Damn, ago. that's, that's
0: just so tough. interesting.
1: Um, and an interesting thing that we see is all the fossils that we're finding, we don't see an equivalent that's circulating and infecting people today. Um. So maybe the fossils were really successful in priming our immune system oh, and yes. the viruses are now extinct.
2: I have a question sort of on the other end of that idea. Is it possible that any of these viruses could then become active now? Like if we've got these fragments in our DNA, have they been silenced or could they be, you know, cause us to get dengue fever again?
1: Usually they're silenced pretty quickly. Okay. Uh, when I want to say quickly that's over thousands of years, but we're looking <laughs> at a big time scale. But in like um, in evolution, <laughs> that's a blink of an eye, Yeah, right? exactly. Um, cuz if it could be reactivated it would be and it would usually kill you in the survival of the fittest if you have an active virus in your DNA you're not going (laughs) to survive so uh, one of the first things that happens after the virus integrates is it gets full of stop codons and what that means is it can't function anymore it can't be turned into proteins it can't hurt us
3: so in, in one of one of the analogies you've written about you talk about the host virus arms race. Is, is that what you're referring mm. to here? Sort of uh, sort of this race or fight? Yeah, definitely.
1: Because yeah. um, one thing that I found really interesting was that plants and insects all use viral fossils as their main immune defense. They don't have really. um, antibodies or immunoglobulins you know, that kind of stuff. Wow. They only use RNA-based defense. So all of their defense is based on transcription.
0: So, like, interferon-adjacent sort of... Um, like, not
1: interferons or anything like no, that. No,
0: but, like, uh, acting, in, I guess, in a similar way to interferon. Yeah.
2: So in a yeah. way, right. Yeah. It's,
1: it's like a system built on a different foundation, but it does the same thing. Yeah. Um, so we think that the interferon stuff would then have been the next great leap in the virus host race. Oh, But right. maybe there's still things that the RNA system can do, so we want to keep it around because it might just give us that edge that we need.
2: Wow. Okay. Does this work help with people um, kind of tracking the history of animals or of people, as in like when not so much the virus evolved but actually the animals evolved? Could you tell from the
1: Yeah, you can do that. We usually do it the other way around because we know animals a lot better we Mm. can look at the um, dna inside them and get really precise timelines for dating but there was a really interesting study that looked at virus viral fossils of hepatitis b virus which is still around today and they showed that like movements during the slave trade and things hmm. um, where they were occurring, where people came from, and where they went to by tracing the hepatitis B fossils, wow. whether they were there or not. Um, so that's a bit of a left field application, but yeah. interesting stuff.
2: Uh, fascinating. Um, I guess uh, maybe pivoting a little bit towards um, your more research uh, kind of where you're at in your research. Are you uh, a solely bioinformatics so a, a dry lab uh, scientist or do you also do wet lab experiments
1: i would love to do both <laughs> at the <laughs> moment i'm mostly dry lab uh, so i use a lot of computers to analyze lots and lots of data and look for patterns but in the future i would like to transition that into wet lab work and actually start having a look at some of these pieces of viruses and growing them in the lab to see what they do and hopefully prove that they can protect cells
0: it sounds like the beginning of a horror film. I'm sure you've heard <laughs> it before. Too. Like, oh, let's see what these viruses do in the next minute. You know,
1: I'll just leave it on a table. With the door open. <laughs> yeah. Extra sure. glass of water. Always, yes. always a good
0: idea. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was just gonna, uh, now I guess we can talk about bioinformatics. Uh, now I've entered the chat. Um, <laughs> uh, so how do you actually go about? So in your in your paper um, you you put out last year, right? Um, you were looking at RNA sequencing data and small m- RNA sequencing data sets of like what? How many uh, species? Thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah. And you found viruses in it was like six or so of them. Yeah. Yep. Oh, bang on. Cool. <laughs> um, so maybe you do you want to have a, a just just um overview or discuss what the difference is between um the RNA sequencing data and the small RNA sequencing data and what you maybe what you found
1: yeah for sure uh, so the first step in any study like this is to look for what eaves or what viral fossils are there
0: and what are eaves again what does that stand for
1: it stands for endogenous viral element so nice. endogenous means it comes from our genome viral because it's a virus an element because it's not a full virus it's just a bit of it
2: cool and this is what We were referring to it as the fossils.
1: Yes, Yeah.
2: Eve's the fossils. Eve's fossils, same thing.
1: Yep. Um, So the first step is just having a look at what's there. Um, So that was done in RNA sequencing because of this particular issue we have in Australia that not many marsupials have been sequenced. Mm. Um, We've had a lot of research on koalas and Tasmanian devils because they have um, issues with conservation at the moment. There's a lot of things threatening them. But outside of that, there's not many genomes available. So usually step one is you would look through the genome or the DNA and find all of the fossils. But I couldn't do that, so the next best thing was looking through all of the RNA in a cell. So sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, like every gene can be transcribed, and that means it's turned from DNA into RNA, and we can look at that as a bit of a map. Um, I've heard someone once say that DNA is like the zip file, and RNA is the extracted stuff. <laughs> so we should be able to find the same things.
2: Um, is the, so the RNA that is then transcribed from what could be an EVE,
1: mm-hmm.
2: how would you distinguish that from, like, uh, it, if the animal had gotten infected recently um, by by one of the the other viruses?
1: Yeah, so if it was infected recently, we would find the whole virus. Gotcha. Or, okay. you know, a part of... Like, from beginning to end, the virus would be there. Like, if you go in to get a COVID PCR, they're only looking for a little bit, but they could find all 32,000 bases of the coronavirus if they wanted to. What you'd find with an E for a viral fossil is just one snippet Hmm. over and over again being transcribed. So a bit of a hint. Well, this was when I was looking for the new viruses. I was always finding this protein called a nucleoprotein and nothing else. And a virus usually has a nuclear protein along with a lot of other genes mm. so the fact that I was just finding this one gene or protein over and over was a bit of a hint that something was not right
2: mm. and that's how you then identify whether there's fossils in there Yeah. okay right and so was there sort of obvious patterns in these viral fossils depending on the biology of the underlying marsupials so are there like things about you know Tasmanian devils that are related to I don't know another Australian marsupial I don't know too many <laughs> <Like> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can, keep swimming, keep swimming. <laughs> kangaroo like, uh, you know are, are there certain things about their biology that um, maybe make them more prone to, to eaves? Eves or
1: um, it seems that some of them are more prone so the carnivorous ones like the Tasmanian devil and the quoll. Um, and the possum, so to an extent, <laughs> which eats insects, they sen- tend to have more eaves than like a wallaby that eats grass or kangaroos. Ah, interesting. Um, but in general, we actually found trends that were very similar to humans and mice and other mammals. So right. that's good in a way. Massive appeals fit in.
3: Mm. <laughs> mm. So for our listeners who maybe don't quite understand the, the DNA, RNA side of things... How could this research help the marsupials of Australia in in the future?
1: That is something I tackle every day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This research hopefully can be applied to anything. Um, So, you know, people as well. But for marsupials in particular, um, I like to think of the koala at the moment. So the koala is currently threatened by a retrovirus pandemic, which is very dangerous um, for it, killing a lot of koalas. And we can have a look through the genome, and when we do, we see that in the past it's been infected by hundreds of retroviruses for the last millions of years, but none of them are similar to this current one. So Mm. we could kind of say that's why it's doing so well, because the koala has never had a previous history with anything like this.
0: So I guess um, in your analogy, the virus <clears throat> is currently winning the arms race.
1: Yes, definitely. It's winning because um, the koala has never seen anything like it. So it's mm. got pictures of people to yeah. look out for. So this a, one is not one of them. koala COVID. <laughs> it like, is kind of like a koala COVID. Oh my God. Yeah.
0: And I guess deforestation doesn't help Yeah. Either. <laughs>
1: no. Um, but that also tells us that it probably didn't come from Australia. And one uh, of the papers published mm-hmm. recently does suggest that the koala retrovirus at the moment came from Indonesia. So Ah. we can kind of use the eaves to get an idea of what is Australian and what is not and match that stuff.
2: And so in terms of conservation, if you sequence all of these animals and you find the ones that have never seen an those ones would be more at risk to overseas, potentially pathogens. Exactly. Coming in. Yep. And can we vaccinate marsupials?
1: Uh, You could. I can (laughs) see why not. (laughs) But I, you know, maybe this going taking it 10 20 years into the future probably more like 30 50 years into the future um, we might be able to develop vaccines based around what these eves are doing um, because mm. you know nature usually thinks of it first yeah. if these are an inheritable vaccine of sorts we could copy that mechanism yeah. and use it so that your parents get vaccinated and you don't have, and you to, you don't have
0: to wow i guess the issue with them um, with the koala vaccine is that everyone gets worried about blinky bill gates putting um Bring the vaccines out. Does <laughs> that not work? Come on, Blinky Bill, <laughs> Koalas, Bill Gates, <laughs>
3: the vaccines. Surely someone at home. Right? Surely. Tweet us if you like. <laughs> yeah. right. So where are you at now in your it's your PhD, right? Where yeah. are you at in that journey
1: now? So I have done step one, which is finding all of the eaves and just characters characterising them, so putting them into little categories, how many are there, what type are they, that kind of thing. Uh, What I'm about to be doing is getting some RNA and sequencing that. Uh, So like I said, some genes are put into or transcribed into RNA, and if they're doing anything in a cell, like if they're protecting us or causing cancer or anything else, they have to be RNA first. So that's a bit of a hint if we find it in both the RNA and the DNA that it's serving a function. So that's going to be step two, is matching that and seeing, okay, are all of them possibly serving a function or are only a subset actually being turned into this RNA? Um, And then after I do that, I can then start to look at what we call differential expression. Mm -hmm. So in cancer cells, for example, do we see more eaves being turned into RNA Mm -hmm. or do we see less? Um, And then hopefully we can start to think of some actual causation studies. Awesome. Um, So I actually don't think I'm going to finish this in my PhD, (laughs) considering I've got about a year left. But it's definitely a topic that I hope the research group will continue after me. If not, I'll try and find someone interested that will (laughs) let me continue.
3: Yeah, that was going to be the next question. So that's your, your current state and where you're almost at with the PhD. Where to next for you? So in terms of... You know, career options. I'm sure there's so many people out there listening in, keen on having an impact on wildlife in Australia there. What would someone like yourself do post PhD?
1: For me, um, definitely I want to go on the professor route. Yeah. So carry on to academia. So that means doing some postgraduate positions afterwards, which are usually two or three year contracts at different research groups around the world. Um, that way I can meet people, I can learn a few different topics and skill sets to then bring back and hopefully start my own lab one day. Um, But something that I really like to do in the meantime, and like part of why I'm here is I think science communication Mm -hmm. is great. So whatever I go into, I definitely want to continue communicating the science um, and sharing it because, you know, I found this so interesting as a kid. And if I can do that for other kids or other people thinking about science, I think that's great.
3: That's really lovely. For those, for those science kids out there listening, because there's bound to be, <laughs> bound to be lots of them like <laughs> yourself, um, what is one bit of advice um, you as a scientist now would, would have for them?
1: Uh, expect to fail, probably. This was a hard lesson I learned not until my honours year, which is after doing three years of undergraduate study <laughs> after all of high school. Um, but everything works perfectly, usually. In high school and in undergrad, <laughs> they give you everything pre, yeah. like, set up. You just have to add the red liquid to the blue one and then it turns purple. <laughs> um,
3: but when you do
1: actual science research, that doesn't work, and that's okay. And you've got to realize that something not working is still something you can learn from, and you can think, okay, well, why didn't it work when I thought it did? Let's delve into this and have a think about it. Maybe what I thought was wrong, and maybe that's a good thing.
3: Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely. great advice, you know. Not getting stuff right is, is part of part of the progress journey, yeah. It's Definitely. not really quite a straight line. It's more like a... chaotic. Might never get out of this. <laughs> yeah. uh, well,
2: it was so lovely talking to you. Um, I'm really keen to see how this project ends up and where you go on in the future. It sounds like so much interesting work to be done. Um Thanks for coming on, and, and thanks everyone at home for listening. Uh, we're really keen to, to do our next guest next week, next time, um, and we'll see you then.
3: Thanks for that. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.